Today, rather than focusing on being thankful for little things, which we are, I want to expand our thinking to show you a man with a thankful heart for a missions-minded church. And he's a man that you know well, of course, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a missionary in the truest sense of the word in a time when almost all of the known world consisted of unplowed ground for the gospel. He is the real missionary. Now, for us, as we've studied Paul in the past, he is also the consummate churchman. He is the one through his Holy Spirit-inspired writings has really defined the church more than any other New Testament writer. We understand how to do church primarily because of Paul. But in his heart, Paul is a wandering soul and he longed for new territory. He said in Romans 15 verse 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named lest I build on someone else's foundation. He longed to preach the gospel to people who had never heard the name of Christ. The date is the early spring of 57. Paul is at the end of his third missionary journey. He's in the city of Corinth. He's been through some difficult times there with that church. Very shortly, he's going to go to Jerusalem to hand over to the elders of the church of Jerusalem a gift of money that he's been organizing for some time from primarily Gentile churches to help that church in Jerusalem. But once that was done, Paul had a plan which he'd been formulating for, for some years. It was a dream of his. It was a hope. And that was to find fresh new fields in which to plant the seeds of the gospel. He had no desire to settle down in one place where the gospel was well established. And so his eye turned to the west. His eye turned to Spain. The oldest Roman province in the west and the chief stronghold of Roman civilization in that part of Europe But his plan to go to Spain would also give him another opportunity, which he deeply hoped for, and that was to go to Rome. He was a Roman citizen by birth, but he'd never seen the city. And more importantly, he had never personally met the entire church at Rome, which by now was was just flourishing in so many ways. And so while Paul was in Corinth at the end of the winter of 56 and 57, early spring of 57, Paul dictated to his assistant, Tertius, his letter to the Romans. And in this letter, he expressed his hope to go to Spain. He said in Romans 15, verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So he's hopeful that the church at Rome will help him financially to get to Spain as well as to encourage him on his journey and he had a deep longing to see these believers in, in Rome. He, he, he yearned for them. In Romans 1.15, he said, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, why is this? Uh, Paul had, hadn't been to Rome before, but in his travels to the many churches that he planted in Asia Minor, he got to know many believers who now found themselves in Rome. And so his desire to go to Rome isn't just to see a church filled with people he'd never met. It was to be reunited with old friends, to see these precious believers, many of whom he had a part in their salvation. And it is in our text this morning of Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16, that we also get to meet Paul's friends, people who are dear to him, people who would be thrilled to learn that Paul was going to try to come to them. 
And in the course of our getting to now meet Paul's friends, what we're going to see is an all-star lineup of church members for whom the gospel was not something that was just part of their quote-unquote church life. Church was their life. The gospel was their life. The spread of the good news of Christ was their life. They worked for the sake of the gospel, and that was their passion, that was their drive. And they were, as we'll see, a missions-minded church at the very highest level. So, let's meet Paul's friends, who in Christ can now be our friends, since you will meet every one of them in heaven. Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been the mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, there's a unique feature in this passage. There's something that's special, and it's what caught my eye as I was thinking and praying about where to go in this message. Something special from the Apostle Paul. In verse 4, Paul says that he gives thanks to Prisca and Aquila. What is unique about this is that Paul never uses that Greek word to give thanks, eucharisteo, to express thanks to anyone but God, except this time. This is the only time he uses it to give thanks to human beings. Of course, many other times Paul's thanks goes to God in his letters. But here what made him thankful were were the actions of Prisca, more popularly known as Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila in particular, and by extension, the actions of others that he's listing. And what is it that made him thankful? What made him thankful was their amazing dedication to the gospel, dedication that even went to the point of risking their own lives. And so for Paul, the church at Rome was a church which engendered thankfulness in his heart because they were missions-minded. They cared deeply for the spread of the gospel, and they showed this in very tangible ways. And so as we approach our own holiday of Thanksgiving and as we're heading into 2020, 
in which as a church we'll have a more concerted focus on the Great Commission and on missions. Today I'd like to highlight Paul's thankful heart for this missions-minded church. So what were the qualities of this church which so engendered thanksgiving by the ultimate missionary really of all time, Paul himself? Well, very simply, I think we can identify five of these qualities which a missions-minded church displays. Let me give you the first quality of a missions-minded church. And these are all just one words, one word, partnership. Partnership is the first quality of a missions-minded church. What we have in this chapter is the most detailed portrait and list of individuals in a New Testament church. This is, the, this is our biggest picture of any one single church. Paul asks the church in Rome to greet on his behalf 26 individuals, two larger households, and between three and five separate meeting places of the church. But the first name we encounter isn't really part of the list of those that Paul wished wish to be greeted. It is Phoebe. It's very likely that Phoebe first heard the gospel from Paul during his first visit about seven years earlier when he first came to Corinth in the nearby port town of Sincrea. Now Paul is on his third visit to Corinth. He had, he, he had seen her character, the character of Phoebe. His second visit to Corinth had been a painful visit. In fact, uh, he basically was run off by the church. But apparently Phoebe stayed true. She stayed above that. She continued her fidelity. She continued her love. And Paul says, I commend to you, Phoebe. It's a Greek word that literally says, I stand next to her. I stand by her. Her affection and yearning for her brothers and sisters in Christ was so obvious that Paul says, I'm proud to stand by her. And so the Apostle Paul entrusted this letter to the Romans to Phoebe, who carried it personally to Rome. The letter had to identify Phoebe as a fellow believer and someone who knew Paul. If not, anyone could have written some letter saying that this was from Paul And so Phoebe would have shown up in Rome, likely unknown to most or all of the believers. This written introduction here says it's okay to listen to what she has to say. And by the way, little historical note, Phoebe goes down in history as the first person ever to read the book of Romans out loud. She is the carrier of the message. She read it to the church at Rome, not in any instructive or authoritative capacity at all. She was simply the giver of the message. And it's this magnum opus of the Apostle Paul that outlines some of the greatest truths of the gospel. I just want to walk through Romans for a moment. You don't have to worry about references or anything. Just listen to what Romans tells us. Romans tells us that we are not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Why? Because none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And every mouth will be stopped. And the whole world will be accountable to God. For by works, no human being will be justified in his sight. Paul tells us in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift, the free gift of God is the eternal life that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul tells us that we can be justified by His grace as a gift 
Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is a satisfaction of the wrath of God to be received by faith. And Paul tells us, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. And Paul asks the rhetorical question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, I would imagine that when Phoebe read that good news to the church at Rome, that their jaws were on the ground. It is unmatched in the New Testament. The message of the gospel is presented in Romans. Glorious good news, as proclaimed by Paul to the Roman church, that the gospel is free, it's freely offered, it's freely given. Jesus had paid for the sins of all who would receive him by faith. That is good news indeed. But while the gospel is free, the spread of the gospel is not free. It costs. It takes resources. Apparently, Phoebe was a woman of some means, either a businesswoman or a widow, who had inherited her late husband's fortune. Paul says in verse 2, she has been the patron of many and myself as well. In other words, she had laid out large sums of money to support the work of the gospel, the work of missions, the work of gospel preaching. What a partnership just between these two. Phoebe was not a preacher of the gospel and had means. Paul was a preacher of the gospel and had no means. That is the ultimate missions-minded partnership. But we see partnership in this missions-minded church in other ways as well. In verse 3, we see the familiar Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila are probably the most famous couple in the New Testament other than Joseph and Mary, but certainly the most well-known couple in the early church. Paul first met them in Corinth on his second missionary journey. They had come from Rome because all the Jews were expelled by Emperor Claudius in the, in the expulsion decree of all the Jews in the year 49 they were tent makers by trade a trade that paul also knew and used and after ministering together in corinth for some time paul had developed a great trust in priscilla and aquila and he dropped them off in the city of ephesus to begin the work there acts chapter 18 verse 18 tells us this while they were there they helped the preacher apollos have a better understanding of Christ. Apollos, a mighty man in the scriptures, and yet his understanding of soteriology was incomplete. His understanding of Christ was incomplete. And Priscilla and Aquila did a great favor to the whole church and helped Apollos along so that his preaching might be even better. Later, Paul joined Priscilla and Aquila back in Ephesus where they enjoyed a lengthy ministry partnership together. At some point, they returned to Rome after the death of Claudius to their home, perhaps to restart their business there, and maybe even to prepare the way for Paul to come. But certainly their, their passion, their drive was to serve the church of Jesus Christ. That, that was what they were about. And you notice that Paul extends his greeting to them. And in verse 5, the church in their house. The early church didn't own large buildings in which to meet. So the early pattern was a group of qualified elders 
who oversaw the church in that city, and the church met in various locations, yet under one group of qualified elders, they would meet in the larger homes of some of the church members. It's estimated that the largest homes in the, in the courtyard area or even in large meeting rooms could hold anywhere between 75 and 100 people for a, a church meeting, a church service. And Paul here lists at least three separate meeting places, most likely actually five. There's the church here, which met at the home of Priscilla and Aquila. There's possibly the church which met in the family home of Aristobulus in verse 10. And by the way, in verse 10, he isn't grieving Aristobulus directly. There's good evidence that Aristobulus was the brother of King Herod Agrippa. Aristobulus died in 48 or 49, but those who were, had been his slaves, they're still identified as part of the household. And it seems that they came to Rome together to maintain the household of Aristobulus even after his death. And so, these Roman slaves of Aristobulus, it's the, the, the scene might be something like this. They're looking around. Hey, our boss has been dead for a number of years now. We got this big giant house. We're all believers. Let's have the church meet here. And then you have verse 11. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those of the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Same thing for these two. Slaves in the households of Herod Agrippa and Narcissus. Now, Narcissus was a well-known, unbelieving freedman who had served Emperor Claudius. He committed suicide right before Paul wrote Romans. But in his household were slaves who had come to faith in Christ. Paul calls Herodian his kinsman. He's likely a Jew in the household of Herod Agrippa. And slaves often had the names of their masters and that Tradition is carried on um, even into modern times, into uh, servants and so forth. And so likely what we're talking about here is the household of Narcissus. Again, Narcissus is gone, looking around saying, we have this big house, let's have the church meet here. Then you have a fourth group, verse 14. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who were with them. Who are the brothers who are with them? Well, the church that meets with them in one location. There's no information about this group except that they likely met all together. And then finally, in verse 15, greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and the sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. So now you have a fifth meeting place, probably led by Philologus and Julia, husband and wife, who were the hosts and hostess. With a partnership for the gospel. How, how simple is this? They didn't go on Amazon and order five books on how to be effective for Christ. They didn't go to a long, lengthy, two-year evangelism class. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't do this uh, long training. They said, I have a home. Let's have people meet here. It was that simple. And that's how the church grew. That's how new believers came into the body through these meetings of the church in their homes. But then there was a partnership on a larger scale as well. Rome itself consisted of a well-organized partnership of various meetings of one local body, but they also had missions relationships with other churches. And for example, Phoebe is bringing Paul's letter to the Romans. Essentially, she was doing a short-term ministry trip as a representative of whom? Of the Corinthian church. To the Roman church, never forget when we want to slam the Corinthians, they're the ones who sent Phoebe to take Romans to the church at Rome. 
And at the end of this section, verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. All the churches is not speaking of every church on earth, but the churches that Paul has personally been instrumental in planning from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Romans 15 tells us this. And so these are churches they would be familiar with. They they are in the same organization, so to speak. And so Paul is very graciously including the Roman church in the sphere of all the churches who know Paul and who support him in prayer and in in financial support. We have this as well. We enjoy this. Grace Bible Church is part of a similar sphere of local churches. Other churches which support our missionaries, our church planting missionaries, we've partnered with them for the sake of the gospel. And of course, now next year, uh, Grace Bible Church will partner at a higher level with all the churches of Brazil Gospel Fellowship Mission. Their vision for the coming year, by the way, is to do expansion church planning work in northeast Brazil, more development in south Brazil where our team is going, and to launch brand new churches in southeast Brazil and target specific high population areas. And we get to go help them do that. We get to go pour into their lives so that they are rejuvenated and energized for that great work so partnership it's at the heart of a missions-minded church a church that doesn't have its fingers and its relationships out among others has has missed their call they've missed what we're to be about there's a second quality paul was thankful for in the missions-minded church another one word description and that is love Love, these, these believers here weren't somehow super Christians. They were just normal people who were dedicated to the spread of the gospel. As a matter of fact, the majority of the names in this list are either names of slaves or freedmen, slaves who have been given their freedom, or descendants of slaves. In, in other words, in this great city of Rome, Paul is in awe of the fact that it is the lowest of the low that God has used to spread the gospel in this large city. For the most part, this list here is not a list of professional paid staff. They're just servants in the church. Now, I want you to notice something that Paul mentions about many of them, and that is their love. Their love. Look at the second half of verse 5. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. This is the only time Epinatus is mentioned in the New Testament. He's the first convert in the Roman province, which was called officially Asia. The capital of Asia was Ephesus. So Epinatus most likely was the very first convert in Ephesus, almost certainly under the evangelization efforts of Priscilla and Aquila since they were there before Paul. And so how did he get to Rome? Well, Probably when Priscilla and Aquila came to Rome, Epinetus said, I want to go with you. And he might even have worked with them in their tent making business. But in some way that that we don't have details about this, but in some way he is special enough to Paul to be called my beloved Epinetus, my beloved. And then in verse eight, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. He's immortalized as a key member of the church, by the way, as um, there's a mention of him in an inscription in the Roman catacomb. He was special enough to be inscribed by members of the church after his death. But Ampliatus also is referenced by Paul as my beloved in the Lord. 
Verse 9, my beloved Stachus. We don't know anything about Stachus except that his name sounds like a stake. That's it. We don't know anything else. But he merited mention by name. He loved the church at a level which brought him to Paul's mind and memory. And remember, we're talking about a church of many hundreds and maybe thousands. These are the people Paul mentioned. Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Rufus is almost certainly the son of Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross of Jesus when he collapsed under the weight of it. He's chosen in the Lord, Rufus is. It may be used in this case to single him out as outstanding or uh, esteemed or choice among the believers. But more likely, it's just identifying that the fruit of Rufus's work for Christ clearly has shown him to be a believer. Your, that your work has shown you to be in Christ, as all believers are chosen in the Lord. But look at Rufus's mother. At some point, apparently, she had taken care of the Apostle Paul. Boy, what a family. What treasured memories they have. Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross of Christ and his wife caring for the Apostle Paul three decades later. Now, I have a tender question to ask you. When Paul was writing this letter, the names of the most beloved to him, those whose character of loving the church and in context here, loving the lost, he brought them by name to his own mind and he took the time to write this down. Here's my tender question. Are you loving to the point that when the idea of loving, giving, sacrificial fellowship of believers is brought up, your name comes to the hearts and minds of some? That when someone says, what is a loving Christian like? That some will say, well, they're like you. Can you point to anyone for whom you've been like a mother or a father, like Rufus's mom treated Paul? This is so important. You can't be a missions-minded church without love. You can't do it. Because we recall from John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have, what? Love for one another. You want to be a missions-minded church? It starts here. It starts with us. Husbands, love your wives, and wives, love your husbands. Shepherds, love the sheep and one another, and sheep, love the shepherds and one another. It starts with the foundation of love here. Erode the foundation of love. Then a church is trying to build mission on sand. But if you maintain the foundation of love, now the concrete sets up upon which we build outreach. Does that make sense? We have to love one another first. And so the great commission for us starts right here. Begins here. As a matter of fact, Paul's commentary on the love in the church finishes this section. Verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. I preached an entire message on the holy kiss once just to clear things up about that. In this culture, it was a cultural sign of unity and of love and of allegiance and of fidelity with one another under the banner of Christ. This is a call to love one another. Absolutely has to be the place we begin. But there's a third quality of a missions-minded church for which Paul was thankful. One word, work. Work. They were consumed with gospel work and not much else. 
when we take people through our membership process in, in our Grace Connect class, one of the things we try to make clear is that if you become a member at Grace and we ask you to work, uh, that's not something you pray about. You don't say, let me, let me pray about whether the Lord would have me be a faithful Christian or not. You don't need to pray about that because you're already commanded to do that. Because when you sign up as a member, you sign up to do stuff. That's just the way it is. I, it's so sad when the church degenerates into a few paid professionals who are charged with doing all the work, having all the concern for the work of the kingdom. I'm always concerned about a church that has leaders that are very concerned for being missions-minded and a membership that has no clue and doesn't care. That's a wrong separation that it shouldn't be. What's the job of the leadership? Well, it's found in Ephesians 4.12 to equip the saints for the what? Work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Which is why we try to push back against a consumer mindset. When you come to Grace Bible Church, obviously the first thing you think is, what can you do for me? You know what I love is the occasional guest who says, I wonder what I can do for them. That's what a Christian does. But look at the workers. Verse 6, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. We don't know which Mary this is. About every fourth person in the Roman Empire was named Mary. So Mary has worked hard. And there's a sense here in which she's already kind of earned her stripes. She might be an older woman that Paul is pointing to and saying, she is a worker. Look at how she has lived her life. She has in some sort of way been a support role to make the presentation of the gospel more effective. Yeah, verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord. What a compliment. Tryphena and Tryphosa, greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Tryphena and Tryphosa were likely sisters. Many scholars believe they were twins. Both their names mean delicate or dainty, which is ironic because Paul calls them workers. They weren't afraid to roll up their dainty little sleeves and get to work for the gospel. Persis listed among them another woman in the church, and so you have three women who were either slaves or freed women, and yet they're seen by Paul and by the Lord as vital parts of the mission of the Roman church. All the work of the church really should be seen as assisting in some way the proclaiming of Christ and the gospel. This is one of the criteria that our leadership tries to think through with any ministry. How does this contribute to mission? How does this contribute to our call to proclaim Christ, to proclaim the gospel? Boy, in the New Testament, we have so many stellar examples of missions-minded churches that were workers. They were working churches for whom the spread of the good news of Christ wasn't just a duty that they tried to be involved with when it was sort of convenient for them. They were consumed with the spread of the gospel. Absolutely consumed. Churches like the church at Philadelphia in Revelation 3, commended by Christ himself as the church of the open door. Churches like the church at Thessalonica for whom Paul gave thanks in 1 Thessalonians 1.3 for their, quote, work of faith and labor of love. Churches like the church at Antioch in Acts 13 whose elders fasted and prayed and sought the Lord concerning missions and who became the group of elders who would send out Barnabas and a man by the name of Paul to the mission field. Faithful examples, inspiring examples Challenging examples of churches that worked. These were missions-minded churches which took care of business when it came to evangelism and missions. Can I put it this way? 
these were people, and this was a church that didn't look at their calendar in the middle of December and plan all of their family vacations and plan all the things that they wanted to do, plan all of their dreams, all of their hopes, all of the things that were convenient for them, all of the things that made them feel good, and then said, hmm, I wonder what time we have left for the work of the gospel. These were people who thought Christ could return any day and they were absolutely consumed with this. Yes, husbands love your wives. Yes, wives take care of your husbands and your families. Yes, have godly families. But beyond that, they really didn't have complex lives. You know what they did? They did two things, family and church because Christ was coming and they had a sense of fire under them. They worked Let me give you a fourth quality of a missions-minded church. One word, discipleship. Discipleship. It is possible to attempt to be missions-minded in a church that has no content. In a church where you're relying on emotion and rah-rah missions and things to heat up your feelings and your emotions. But ultimately that falls flat. There is a foundation of quality spiritual growth, a foundation of personal maturity and qualified leaders that have to ensure a missions-minded church. Paul uses a technical term here for those closest to him in ministry, those probably more fully set apart for full-time gospel work. And the technical term is fellow workers. Fellow workers. It's one word in Greek, but it's translated in English, fellow workers. In verse 3, Priscilla and Aquila, they're called fellow workers. Now, obviously, Priscilla could not and would not function in the capacity of an elder or a pastor, but she was still instrumental. She had been instrumental in privately helping Apollos in Corinth better understand the gospel. And certainly she supported all the efforts that she and her husband did together. Verse 9, Urbanus is called our fellow worker in Christ. Maybe not as personally known to the Apostle Paul, but he made a reputation for himself as a qualified leader at some level. He was a worker, not a complainer, but a worker. Verse 10, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Apelles is said to be approved. Now, this is a word that can have a kind of a broad range of meaning. It can simply mean esteemed. More often, it speaks of having passed some sort of trial or test But I think given the context of all these faithful workers, some listed as fellow workers, it seems best to take this word approved in the same sense that the same Greek word is used of Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.15, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Same Greek word, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. What is Paul telling Timothy? Basically, he's saying, you've been tested, you've been approved, you've been ordained for gospel ministry, act like it and preach like it. In other words, this is the highest level of being set apart for service, formal ordination to the gospel ministry. And who knows, this might have been the moment when Apelles was wondering, am I approved or not? And Phoebe says, Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Yes, I made it. I'm in. Sit down. I'm about to preach. Because he's approved. But what we see is that the missions-minded church has depth. It has sound doctrine. You can't help send people out to proclaim the gospel if you don't have a secure gospel that you understand yourself. You can't do it. 
It values the set-apart fellow workers, the fully set-apart approved workers. And it really is our knowledge of the Word of God which generates our love for Christ. You cannot love beyond the knowledge that you have because then it becomes sentimentalism. And that's not real love. Love is based in knowledge, not based in imagination. Our knowledge of the Word generates our love for Christ. That in turn generates a desire to obey Christ, which in turn generates a desire to proclaim the gospel of Christ. All throughout church history, listen, the most effective missions-minded churches have always taken care of business at home in first devoting themselves to the Word of God and to personal growth and discipleship. So we have these qualities of partnership, love, work, discipleship. One more quality of a missions-minded church, suffering. Suffering. The missions-minded church gets its hands dirty. It gets its hands dirty. Look with me again at verses 3 and 4. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. In some fashion, Priscilla and Aquila had risked their lives for Paul. What did Paul call himself in Romans eleven thirteen? He said, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. And so not only does Paul give thanks for his life being saved, all the Gentile churches who are still relying on Paul to teach them and to disciple them and to shepherd them, they're giving thanks as well. There's no definitive evidence as to how Priscilla and Aquila risked their lives for Paul, but there is an absolutely definite best candidate. Acts chapter 19 records that while in Ephesus, when Priscilla and Aquila Aquila were also there, Paul's preaching of the gospel was ruining the economy of Ephesus because he was devastating the silver idol business in that city. Listen to the account as recorded by Luke in Acts 19. You don't have to turn there. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, that's the local god, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together and the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Aren't you glad you don't worship a god who's in danger of being deposed? And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I might add, the one that we hold in our hands and we just made last week. So what happens? Well, you hit people's pocketbooks, rioting broke out. The next verse says, So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. So Paul, he's like, all right, we're going to do this. And he's starting to go and somebody gets him by the shoulder. Nope, you're not going in there. Now, who might have done that? Best candidates are Priscilla and Aquila. They were tent makers. They had muscles. And they dragged him out, probably hid him in their home until the riot died down. 
They endangered their lives to save Paul for the greater work of continuing on in ministry. But they're not the only ones in the church of Rome who'd suffered for the ministry. Verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. These are Hellenistic Jews. They are kinsmen of Paul in that they are Jewish, but they have common Greek names. They're very special to Paul because like him, they have been imprisoned for their faith. There's some debate over Junia. It's possible to translate this name either masculine or feminine. The most recent scholarship favors the feminine name so they could be a married couple. And so we would also note that like Priscilla and Aquila and like Philologus and Julia, here's another married couple all in for the gospel of Christ. That was their purpose. That was what they did as a couple. Really, I, I talked to every couple that I... I have the privilege of doing their wedding. I talked to them about the fact you're, you're coming together not to make all your dreams come true. You're coming together to be a team for the sake of the kingdom. Listen, Priscilla and Aquila and Andronicus and Junia, these who suffered, they're so vital to the health of the Roman church. No wonder they were well known to the apostles. They weren't concerned with petty things. I guarantee you they weren't consumed with little jealousies. They weren't concerned with with silly controversies. They weren't concerned with pushing back against church leadership. They didn't ask stupid questions. They didn't complain about little things that didn't matter. They were not the ones in the church who had the spiritual gift of criticism. They risked life. They risked limb for the sake of the gospel. And what an example. What, What a compass to get a church back on course when consumed with little things. It was members like them that helped squelch silly complaints like the pastor preaches on giving too much or the parking lot was full so I had to walk or I didn't like that song or I didn't get my way. Men and women like Priscilla and Aquila, Andronicus and Junia, they're vital to us as a church. We looked at them to remember something that, oh yeah, nothing here is about me. Except I need to learn, I need to grow, I need to be faithful in service, I need to be faithful in fellowship, I need to give all I possibly can, I need to be missions-minded, I need to be an effective tool in the hands of Christ, and I need to stop being a consumer and start being a worker. Quite simply, it's the same sort of reminder that someone gets when they complain about sore feet and then they see someone with no legs it shuts us up pretty fast and gets us focused on the gospel. Amen? Oh, what a list of all-stars. I would have loved to have met all of them. We will. Everything from former slaves to wealthy business owners, single, married, some Jews, lots of Gentiles, those who traveled for the gospel in a time when traveling was hard and dangerous and could get you killed. And for a church this faithful, This intensely missions-minded, look at the unique promise Paul gives them. Chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Wow. I'd love to get that promise for Grace Bible Church, wouldn't you? Well, what can we learn from the church at Rome? Let me give you three quick little lessons. First of all, evangelism is a team effort. Evangelism is a team effort. Yes, 
all believers are called to spread the gospel and to be the light of Christ in whatever environment we're, we're in, at home, the workplace, wherever. But it's clear that the primary work of evangelism is a team effort. It's a synergistic work of the body of Christ working together. Paul didn't even work alone. Look, if there was any person in the last 2,000 years, I would say, all right, that's the guy that could handle being alone. He never did. He never did. In fact, the one time we find him alone was when he was in prison for the last time. And he told Timothy, I'm all alone. And he bemoaned that fact. He always had people with him helping the effort. The church didn't work as a bunch of individuals disconnected from one another. Everyone played a part from the workers to the fellow workers to the approved. We all play a part together. The second lesson we could learn. Missions mindedness is the historic value of the local church from the very beginning. Missions mindedness is the historic value of the local church from the very beginning. It really is not right to say our church is all about the preached word, but we're not really about missions. That's not in our wheelhouse. That's not okay. If we're about preaching the word, the word contains the revelation of Christ. Christ is the revelation of the gospel. The gospel is the revelation of bringing that to everyone else. It's what we do. Even a church with a few dozen people in it can be praying for and in some small way partnering with missionaries and evangelistic church planters. It's healthy for the church. It gives the church such eternal perspective. So it should be important to us as well. One more lesson. Groups which meet in homes provide amazing evangelistic opportunities. Groups which meet in homes provide amazing evangelistic opportunities. The church meetings which met in the five homes mentioned in this passage, and there were certainly many more, but this was the standard way that the gospel was spread. Look, it's this simple. I'm in Rome, and I'm at work in my tent-making office, and I'm... I have a customer come in and the customer seems downtrodden and I say, you seem downtrodden. And he says, just life is hard and I just don't like this and I don't like that. And I say, you know, tonight I'm going to this guy's house and we're going to meet and we're going to pray. Would you like to come with me? That's it. You know what happened as a result of that sort of little interaction times a thousand times 10,000? The spread of the church and the gospel to the known world. We're continually encouraging you to be involved in a small group because it does give you deeper fellowship, relationship in the body that you need, which helps the health of the church. But have you thought about this? Have you thought about getting into a small group for the singular purpose of having an informal way to get the lost to come hear the gospel and to be around believers, to be around in a more intimate setting and get them introduced immediately to our friends and family here in our church? What a glorious opportunity and how easy that is. It could literally be your personal evangelism strategy. Well, as Thanksgiving is upon us, yes, we have little things to be thankful for and we are thankful for those. But how about praying for and working for a church that we can be thankful for because it's missions-minded, kingdom-oriented, And then let's just prayerfully see what God does in the coming months and in 2020. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Our Father, we are thankful to you first and foremost for the cross of Christ. And as we quiet our hearts for this moment, Lord, to not let the distractions that are coming upon us even as we walk out these doors hit us yet. That at this moment, Lord, now we would let the nails of this truth that we are to be missions-minded, let the nails sink deeply into our souls. How sad it will be, Lord, to stand before you and to have you say to us, as 1 Corinthians 3 seems to tell us, that we will receive our evaluation. How sad it would be to stand before you and to be welcomed home as the saved, but to be told you wasted your life. You wasted your time. You took eight weeks of vacation every year, but you couldn't take eight minutes to spread the gospel. You spent $800,000 on your house, but you couldn't spend $8,000 on the gospel. Oh, Lord, keep us from that. I pray that despite what our culture tells us, despite all the distractions, despite all the things that vie for our time and attention, that we would remember that Christ is coming soon. Our lives are slipping away quickly and we have yet short time to be faithful unto you. And I pray, Lord, that as we are thankful for so many blessings, certainly for the cross, that we would be positioning ourselves to be thankful for our local body, not because it meets our needs only, but because we are being faithful to proclaim Christ in every venue, every avenue we possibly can. You are the Lord of the harvest and we would pray for a harvest that you would use this little body in many different ways to do greater things than we possibly could have ever imagined. I thank you for all the things for which you have blessed us with and we ask you, Lord, to bless each one here, not only with those little things that we enjoy, such as our family and time together, but with a fire and a drive to quit complaining and start working, to get to work for the kingdom. I pray these things for the sake of Christ, that the world might someday glorify Him. Amen.